Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I do ask that the work of your word would have its effect on our congregation by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You love this world and you hate this world. The world woos you with its brilliant starlight, the delicate springtime flowers, the beauty of a sunset. It charms you with sweet friendship, the thrill of victory, the worn and weathered heights of true love. It teases you with the joy of a spoon and a tub of Ben and Jerry's, or the stirring power of a good story told these days with surround sound and panoramic intensity. We love this world. And we also hate this world. It crushes us under the weight of its cruelty, betrayal, rejection, injustice, disease, aging, death. Not to mention the overwhelming tempest in our souls when we're faced with how ugly we can be, how empty our lives at times seem, and how purposeless our daily grind is. We love this world and we hate this world. The good and bad are co-mingled. The good is here because of a loving and good God who created this world. His fingerprints are all over it. The bad is here because mankind rebelled against that God. We thought our ways better than His. So we've been making a mess of it ever since. But a day is coming when that Creator will visit us again upon the earth. According to verse 25, 
that day is drawing near. And on that day, what is now commingled will be separated out. After Jesus returns, the good will be unalloyed, pure. The bad will be unalloyed, intense and terrible. God will establish a new and better world that is all that is good and lovely about this world, only a whole order of magnitude better. And for all eternity. But He will also establish a place called hell. A place where all that is foul and wicked in this world pools. Void of all the good things in this life that help soften the agony and intensified as God's just anger against sin rages in a fire, and it too will go on for all eternity. A real heaven. A real hell. That's what the Scriptures teach. Now you can reject the message. You cannot say you were never warned. Ah, but I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't need to worry about the warning. I go to church. I'm a decent enough person. I even sometimes pray and read my Bible. So I have nothing to worry about. If that's how you think, listen to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Did you see the word we? The we is not apostle and the mouse in his pocket. The we are those who have receive the knowledge of truth. Any who claim the knowledge of Christ for themselves, the apostle, the original recipients of the letter, and even us today. You can't read this passage and miss the fact that God wants Christians, Christians to be warned about the dangers of hell and encouraged by the rewards of heaven. So, What should motivate us as Christians to persevere in the faith? Christians should be motivated by both the terrors of hell and the rewards of heaven. And it's not just the message to God's people in Hebrews 10. It's the message to God's people in Deuteronomy 32. Israel was heading into the promised land and Moses wasn't going to be able to go with them. So he taught them a song. Now, the promised land was a land of rich blessing. But Moses knew that if they sinned, they would jeopardize those blessings. So, the song he taught them was about God as judge. He would repay those who did evil. He would repay Israel's enemies for their wickedness, but He would also repay Israel if she rebelled against Him. And toward the end of the song He taught them are the famous words, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, 
and the Lord will judge his people. You see what Deuteronomy 32 is doing? God motivates his people both by the promise of reward and the threat of judgment. It's the message of God's people in Deuteronomy 32. It's also the message to God's people in Isaiah 26. Isaiah spoke of a day when Messiah would come and rescue his people. In Isaiah 26, he he gives them another song to sing. A song to sing about that day. It's a song that celebrates God's ultimate victory, but it also warns about a fury of fire that will consume those those of God's people who are like the wicked. In the end, at the end of that psalm, or that song, it encourages Israel to take shelter under uh, take shelter until God's anger against sin is past. Only then would they emerge and enjoy his blessings. So you see in Isaiah 26, fire will destroy all, including the people of God who are corrupt. But For those who find their shelter in Him, they will ultimately inherit God's rich reward. So it's another song and it's another reminder that God motivates His people both by the promise of reward and the threat of judgment. It's the message to God's people in Isaiah 26. But it's also the message to God's people in Habakkuk 2. The prophet Habakkuk looks out on Israel sees how corrupt she's become. So Habakkuk pleads with God, do something. And God responds by promising to send judgment on Israel, but through a wicked nation. Well, that raises some questions for Habakkuk. How can God judge Israel through a nation that's even worse than Israel? I mean, isn't that unjust? Now, by the end of Habakkuk, God has promised to deliver righteous Israel from the hands of the enemy, enemy, punishing all injustice, not just Israel's. But first, God encourages Habakkuk and tells him to be a man of faith, to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. He says that some will shrink back and not trust God, and those people will be destroyed. But the one who is truly righteous, is the one who really trusts God. And then Habakkuk pens those famous words, my righteous one shall live by faith. So you see here a third time, God motivates His people both by the promise of reward and the threat of judgment. It's the message of Habakkuk 2. This theme of God's judgment God's reward is motivators. It's, it's throughout Scriptures. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It's there in the Psalms, the Prophets, the Gospels, the Epistles. It's pervasive. But I brought us to those three Old Testament passages, not arbitrarily, but because they're the three passages quoted or alluded to in our Hebrews passage. And I wanted to do that because I wanted you to see that these three passages were not arbitrarily chosen. They teach the same collective point as Hebrews 10. They show us that to fuel our faith, Habakkuk 2, 
that to encourage us to find our refuge in Him, Isaiah 26, to fuel our faith, we need the motivations of both God's reward and God's judgment. God is going to come in judgment, and those who trust in God will hide themselves in Him and therefore avert judgment and enjoy His blessing. But for those who persist in ungodliness, even if they're part of God's people, they will experience the fury of God's judgment. It's a point made by Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Habakkuk, and it's the point made here in our Hebrews passage. So if you've closed your Bible, you can open up there again because we're going to be looking at it. Hebrews 10. Now verses 26 to 31 warn about judgment for those who deliberately keep on sinning. Warn about judgment. And verses 35 to 38 promise reward for those who have faith and endure. Do you see it? Two motivations for faithful living. Judgment and reward. So let's look at that first motivation. Verses 26 to 31. A warning about judgment. Listen as I read them again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you believe? Sorry, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is inspired? Let me say that one more time. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In this passage, God comes right out of the box with the strongest of statements. For the Christian, if your sin is both deliberate and ongoing, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. This is jarring. It makes us uncomfortable. It ruffles our nice theology that tells us if we trust Jesus, God forgives us no matter what. After all, wasn't Jesus' blood sufficient to cover all sins from the greatest to the least? I want to address this ruffling of our theology. I want to address this kind of question. But I want to give you a trigger warning first. My explanation isn't designed to take the teeth out of God's Word. I'd sooner take the teeth out of a lion than take the teeth out of God's Word. You might not feel comfortable when I'm done explaining things. So let's start with the statement that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover all sins. That is, that is true. 
clearly taught in the Bible. There's so many places I could go. 1 John 2 talks about how Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Remember earlier in Hebrews, we learned what propitiation is. It has two directions to it, up and down. So one who propitiates satisfies a just wrath and makes clean the one who the propitiation's for. So Jesus' sacrifice satisfies God's wrath against the sins of the world and it makes clean those who embrace Him. No matter what you've done, you're here this morning, no matter what you've done, no matter how dark and twisted, Jesus has paid the price for that sin. He loves you. He died for you. But we also know that Jesus' blood doesn't benefit everybody. Because those who reject Christ, who never embrace the gospel, will eternally bear the consequence of their sins. Though Jesus paid the debt, they never applied Christ's blood to their sin, so they pay the price for their sin, even though Jesus died for them. To borrow the language of our passage, we might say, for those who go on sinning deliberately and die, having never embraced Christ, there is no sacrifice for their sins. All they have is fearful expectation of judgment. I think so far, for most of us, that doesn't rattle our theology. Now, perhaps it should rattle us into action so that we share the good news of Jesus with, those, with as many people as we can. But it probably doesn't rattle our theology. So all verses 26 and 27 are saying then is if someone has embraced Jesus at some point in their life, yet later lives no differently than a believe, an unbeliever, in a deliberate and ongoing way, Jesus' blood will no more save them than it will save the unbeliever. To put it even more succinctly, we're not saved by lip service. If I say that I've become a Canadian, but I'm braggadocious, I live and act as if America is the only country on the planet, I think the way to world peace is to drop bombs on other people. I struggle to respectfully listen to contrary opinions, and I refuse to acknowledge that curling is a sport. I'm an American. Even if I say I'm a Canadian. Now, I'm actually proud to be an American. And I know I just made an uncharitable caricature of my own people. That isn't true of all of us. But I made you laugh and I made my point. Just because you say you're Canadian doesn't make you Canadian. Just because you say you're a Christian, just because at one point in your life you had a profound religious experience, doesn't make you a Christian. If you live in a way that shows you haven't truly trusted Christ, Jesus' blood isn't going to do you any good. Now I want us to read these verses carefully. It does not say 
if we ever sin again, or if we struggle with an ongoing sin, it says, if we go on sinning deliberately. Both those ingredients are important. Deliberate and ongoing. Every Christian sins deliberately at times. Those times when we're completely aware that what we're about to do is contrary to what God wants. And yet we do it anyways. I say this with reverence, but when we do that, it's like giving the middle finger to God. Yeah, yeah, I say you're good. Yeah, I say you're the rightful king. Yeah, I I know Jesus suffered immeasurably because of my sin. But my whim this moment is more important than all that. So take that, God. Deliberate sin. As awful as that kind of sin is, and we've all sinned like that, God still forgives us. Jesus' blood still covers over that kind of sin. What amazing grace. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. But what happens if you commit that kind of sin, and then later when the guilt kicks in, you suppress the guilt... And you keep your fist up against God. Instead of repenting, you double down into your sin. You begin to self-justify. Then maybe a friend, a Christian friend or a spouse or somebody confronts you. And you're defensive. Now you think about it a little bit more. Maybe there's some merits to what they have to say. But then, you, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, what were they thinking? Maybe what they said has some truth to it. But they are so unloving and judgmental. They sin too. And so again, the self-justifying begins. And so, yeah, maybe you resist the temptation a few times just to show that you have enough self-control if you want to and that you can stop if you need to stop. But you just keep doing it. Inevitably, you cross that line again and then again And then again, and so you go on and on, sinning deliberately, and your heart becomes increasingly hardened to God. That's what it means when we go on sinning deliberately. It means to sin with no repentance. It means to openly defy God again and again without any genuine attempt to repent. I remember seasons of my own Christian life in which I was struggling with certain obvious and outward sins. I knew I was in the wrong. It was deliberate. And I kept failing and failing and failing. But I was consistently grieved by my sin. I would confess it to God. I'd fight hard against it. And I'd list the support of friends and pastors in my battle against it. I didn't keep it secret. In a certain sense, it was deliberate and ongoing. 
But that's not what this passage is talking about. Because I was actively fighting, actively repenting. I was grieved over my sin. This passage is talking about sin that is willful and over time and unrepented of. Such sin will make shipwreck of our soul, even if at some point we have claimed Christ. Because lip service Christianity isn't biblical Christianity. Following Christ isn't something we say, it's something we do. Faith isn't verbal assent, faith is entrusting one's soul to Jesus. And anyone who's truly been changed by the gospel, anyone who's truly grasped the vileness of their sin, who has enjoyed the goodness of Christ's forgiveness and has embraced Christ, anyone like that will not continue in stubborn, willful defiance of God. The cancer survivor doesn't pine for his cancer. The Holocaust survivor does not long for Auschwitz. The Christian does not continually and intentionally pursue his sin. I've used up more than half my time already, and I'm just two verses in. Don't worry, I have this planned out. But I spent that time because that's really the point of all of verses 26 to 31. The rest of the section is just proving this point from the Scriptures. So at the end of verse 27, that's where Isaiah 26 is first quoted. Remember that song that God's people sing when the Messiah is there and includes the line about a fury of fire that consumes them. Well, God in Hebrews is saying that line from Isaiah 26 is still relevant today. Then in verses 28 and 29, it points out that in the Old Testament, Old Covenant system, capital punishment was required for deliberate and ongoing sins, what are called in the Old Testament sins of the high hand. And the argument is from lesser to greater. If capital punishment was required in the lesser covenant, can you imagine the judgment that will come against those who defy the greater covenant? Interestingly, I think this passage teaches us how we should read the Old Testament warning and judgment passages. I think too many of us Christians read those passages in the Old Testament. Well, not enough read them even to begin with. But then when we read them, we say something like, I'm just so glad I don't live in Old Testament times. But the teaching of the Bible is that the greater grace of the New Covenant also brings greater judgment. So today we should doubly fear God, not half fear God. The Old Testament warning passages are for us even more so than they were. For old, old covenant believers. Then verse 30 quotes Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses I mentioned at the beginning. It tells us God hasn't changed. We know him who said. The God who said through Moses, Vengeance is mine, and the Lord will judge his people, is the same God today. So the Old Testament offers proof 
that God's judgment should cause His people to fear sin. Verse 31 brings it all together. It summarizes it and and intensifies the thought of these verses. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The same hands that gently sustain us and uphold us and keep us safe because they're strong and powerful are hands that are to be feared because they are strong and powerful. Now, some of you who are here this morning, and and believe me, I don't have someone in mind when I say this. I just know the nature of us as men, humanity. Some of you, this warning applies to you. You claim to be a Christian, but you're living in clear, habitual, and unrepented sin. This passage is not saying that you right now cannot be forgiven, that your soul is already damned. That's not what this passage is saying. It's saying that if you don't repent... You can't be forgiven. So hear God's voice to you this morning and repent. Not just in your own, I'm going to try again, but get some people around you, talk to someone you trust in the church. Repent. It's like we're hiking a beautiful mountain pass. And God in His grace warns us not to go near a certain precipice Because though it might seem beautiful, the footing is very weak and many people have fallen. He doesn't want us to fall to our death. This warning is meant to motivate us to press on so that we can enjoy the beautiful mountain rest without falling into the danger of that precipice over there. It's not all about the judgment. This passage moves then to the beautiful mountain pass that awaits us. And that's what verses 35 to 38 do, the promise of reward. Listen to these verses and listen for the promises of reward as I read verses 35 to 38. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then there's an allusion to Isaiah 26. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And Habakkuk 2. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But did did you hear it? Great reward. What is promised. Even the echoes of Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2 bring out this theme. Remember Isaiah 26. Hide in the rock. Till God's judgment's passed, then you get to come out and enjoy the goodness of Messiah's victory. Remember Habakkuk 2. Those who trust in God will ultimately be vindicated. When the world around us is swirling with evil, when it seems that the forces of darkness have the upper hand, when Christians have been trod down by the boots of oppression, take heart. 
hide yourself in Christ. Wait. Wait until God is finished dealing with the evil around us. And then, then we will know His great reward. Then we will receive what is promised. The temptations of our own flesh and the rejections of this world incline us to shrink back, to not endure. But God pleads with us. I have a very great reward for you. For all those who trust in me and who wait, trust me. Sometimes as a dad, I plan something for the kids that's fun. We're going to go get donuts or we're going to go get ice cream or something like this. And because I'm weird or whatever, I have my reasons, but I don't always tell them what we're going to do right away. I just say, it's going to be fun. It'll be worth it. So it's a cold winter day, and they've got to get all their stuff on and go out into the car. And sometimes the kids are less than trustful. Why do we have to do this? Is it going to be this? Oh, it's probably not. And I just want them to trust me that I have something good planned for them, that them in the moment, in the moment of having to put their boots on, of all things, that I actually have something good for them, waiting for them. And that's how God is speaking to them and to us. Yeah, it might be exhausting to have to do this again in this weary world that's stained because of Adam's sin. But you know what? There's a reward coming. You can trust me. I have something good for you. God wants us to trust him. What he has promised us is good. So he's motivated them and us with the threat of judgment. And he's motivated them and us with a promise of reward. But he actually knows for them, the original audience, what will be true of them. He, he actually wants to assure them. So even though there's warnings, even though there's a promise of reward, he wants to assure them what's going to be the case. So listen to verse 39, the last verse. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Even though they need to be warned and motivated by that judgment, he knows what's true for them. They are the people of faith, and they will preserve their souls. He knows it. How does he know it? I think in part from verses 32 to 34. Recall the former days, he's speaking of them, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In Hebrews 6, when there's another warning given, he says that I am sure of better things for you because of your love for his name is expressed to the saints. There's something about how they've lived their lives in love for others in the midst of hardship that he knows these are people who've really trusted Christ. 
That description there is a beautiful description of Christianity. Look what they were up against. Hard struggle, suffering, being publicly exposed to reproach, being publicly exposed to affliction, imprisonment, maybe for them or maybe for their friends who were believers, confiscation of their property. And then look at how they responded. They endured being partners with those so treated. They had compassion for those in prison. They joyfully accepted the loss of their property. And all of that, they were able to do all of that because of their confidence that a better and abiding possession awaited them. Their reward. Their eyes were so fixed on their eternal reward that they were, not, that they were able not only to endure great difficulty, they were able to respond with love and joy in the midst of it. At one point, these Christians really got it. Not just lip service Christianity. Not just a fleeting flurry of emotions that eventually petered out. No, these Christians really got it. Something better was coming. So even if the world mocks me, even if it disrespects me, even if it takes, even if it takes away what I have, that's okay. Because I have something better that awaits. That is what true faith is. It's the epitome of faith. It's being sure of what you hope for. It's being confident of what you do not see in a way that affects how you live your life now. And those who have that kind of faith are saved. No question. So what about you? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, and then conquered both sin and death. Do you believe that Jesus dealt this broken world a fatal blow? And do you believe that Jesus is going to return to make right what's wrong and to reward those who've entrusted themselves to Him? Do you believe that a new and better world is coming for all those who are in Christ. And does that belief, that sure hope, shape how you live now? Well, if you do, and I look around here and so many of you do, yes, imperfectly, yes, feebly, but you do, that is true faith. Yeah, weak knees, drooping hands, but that is true faith. It can be hard. It can be hard to persevere in that faith. Because we are weak. We're prone to wander. Our flesh is still strong. The temptations of the world are strong. What goes, the world around us mocks Christ at every turn. Sometimes it's subtle and passive. and Sometimes it's brash and blatant, but it wears us down. And so God, because He loves you, because He cares for you, is giving you two motivations today, this morning, to help you press forward in faith. First, He warns us of the dangers if we don't press forward. He warns us what happens to those who deliberately go on sinning. The result is that Christ's blood will no longer be good for you. It does you no good. Fire awaits you. But he encourages us with the promise of reward. If we 
stay close to Him and wait just a little longer, we'll arrive at our final destination. And the goodness and beauty of that place will be well worth the wait. We live right now in a world where the good and the bad are co-mingled. When Jesus returns, they will be separated out. And that future separation, the good and the bad, ought to motivate our faith as we endure in this season in which the good and bad are still intermixed. Because if we shrink back from our faith and instead continue in deliberate sin, we will live eternally in a hell worse than any of us can comprehend. But if we endure with faith, albeit struggling, feeble, imperfect faith, but if we endure with faith, we'll enjoy the great reward of an eternal paradise better than any of us can imagine. So may we not be a people who shrink back and are destroyed, but may we be a people who have faith and preserve our souls.